0: Turn with me to your Bibles to the book of Psalm, chapter 16, the 16th chapter in the book of Psalms. Just about right there in the very middle of your Bible is the book of Psalms. Uh, If you're fairly new to reading the Bible, then uh, just turn to the middle and you're going to be really, really close. So Psalm, chapter 16. While you're turning there, I want to ask a question. How many of you, now your mom and dad are not here, so you can answer this uh, uh, in freedom, Chances are your mom and dad are not here. Maybe they are. Then that's up to you as to how you answer this question. How many of you, when you were a kid, got in trouble an awful lot? Let me see your hands. All right. <clears throat> Some of you look really proud of that, by the way, which scares me, but, um, but that, that's, that's okay. You know, when, we get, when we're kids, we get in trouble, don't we? You know, every one of us, has have, you know, we know what it's like to get in trouble. But when we get older, it's not so much about getting in trouble, you know, we don't really get in trouble so much as adults. You know, it's not like you go to go to work. You know, I, I come to visit you at work or something and, you know, hey, what's going on? Well, I'm in trouble. I'm sitting out in the hallway. That didn't really happen. You know, I'm not going to come to your house, you know, knock on your door. Hey, can Tim come out and play? You know, and your wife says, no, he's in trouble. <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen probably. So it's not so much about getting in trouble when we get older, but we do go through times of trouble. And granted, sometimes our times of trouble are because we got in trouble somehow, but times of trouble are something that we all face. And and as we get older, it's not about being in trouble, it's about going through trouble. And what we find as we get older is that sometimes that trouble comes on us more quickly than we could ever imagine. Sometimes it can come on us as fast as a phone call and everything changes. Sometimes trouble can come on us so quickly that it's as fast as a medical test and we find out news that we never even saw coming. Sometimes trouble can come in the form of a note left on a table that our spouse has chosen to leave. Sometimes a, a trouble can come on us from a note sent home from school, and we find out that our child is causing us to have a meeting and is going to be going to a new school. Trouble comes in a lot of different ways. It may be the finance guy that calls. It may be the, the boss that calls you in. But we all know what it's like to face trouble. And we all go through times of trouble. Sometimes that trouble comes in the form of change that we didn't know was coming. We didn't have a chance to prepare. You know, Job said in the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 7, he said that as sparks fly upward, surely man was born for trouble. That is an interesting statement, isn't it? As sure as the sparks fly upward. I made a fire out in the yard just a couple of nights ago with the kids. And you know what happened? Something that's happened every time I've made a fire as the sparks came up, they float upward. And Job said, as surely as the sparks fly upward, man was born for trouble. Now, it doesn't mean that God is a malicious God who wants us to suffer, to go through times of trouble or difficulty. It doesn't mean that. In fact, God created everything just fine without any trouble whatsoever in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. It was because of our sin that we then begin to go through times of trouble that God didn't necessarily intend in the beginning, but they come because we live in a fallen world and because we are sinful people. And so trouble is something that invades every single life. And I was as I was putting together this particular message, I was trying to think of a visual. In fact, I asked Susie last week, I said, you know, here's what I'm thinking about. I I need a visual. and I was trying to think through, how can I picture this? And what came to mind was uh, an image that I think captures what trouble is like. It's nothing real fancy. This is it right here. To me, that looks like trouble, you know? You ever untangle Christmas lights? That is trouble, all right? You ever, you know, go fishing and you're, you know, your line backlashes? That's trouble. To me, This is a pretty simple picture of trouble, and the reason for that is because when we go through times of trouble in our lives, whether it's circumstantial, whether it's because of our own failure, our own sin whether it's because of someone else's sin or, or because of change that comes or regardless of what it may be. When we go through times of trouble, this is often the way we feel. It's just this convoluted mess emotionally, right? Where we deal with, with just fear and, and we, we have uh, frustration, but there, there's aggravation there. Maybe there's anger that's there. It, it seems like we can't see clearly. We don't know which way is up. And whenever we go through times of trouble, to me, this just really kind of captures it. And I begin to wonder when we go through trouble, is there something we could work into this? Is there maybe a secret ingredient that we could could work into our trouble that could help it to look differently? And whenever we walk through times of trouble, again, regardless of what it may look like, is there some secret ingredient that can be found there that can help us to make a little more sense of the trouble? that can help us to view it differently and even respond to it differently while we're in the midst of it. And I think there is a secret ingredient. but It's not so much a secret because we find it really woven throughout the pages of Scripture. And the secret ingredient is this, that if there was a way that I could somehow blow this picture out and show you the background, if we can see our trouble against the backdrop of who God is and how He wants to work in our lives and how He can use that trouble for His glory, I think it would change the entire way we look at it when we're there. That if we could somehow blow the picture out and, 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 and in the context of God and, and His presence and His promises and His glory and His power and, and, and the, the, the will that He has for us, if we could somehow see our trouble against that kind of a backdrop, I think it would change the way we view it, the change, it would change the way that we respond to it. In the Old Testament, there are many, many people that walk through times of trouble that, that really appear themselves in different ways. But to me, one of the primary people in Scripture that walked through times of trouble would have to be a man by the name of David. We often know David as the king, right? One of the Old Testament mountain peak figures in the Bible. However, David was a man who was well acquainted with trouble, and he was well acquainted with trouble in a variety of ways. For David, in some ways, his trouble was related to obstacles in his life. One such obstacle would have been a man by the name of Goliath, almost 10 feet tall. Uh, David would find himself eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, toe to toe with Goliath, this enormous physical, literal obstacle where all the nations of, all the people of the the nation of Israel had been cowering in fear because of Goliath. And here stands David, (laughs) willingly, but still, standing in the face of this enormous obstacle in front of him. And you can imagine how he must have felt while he was there. David would face trouble in the form of an obstacle. David would face trouble in the form of his family. He would have one son that would rebel against him, a son by the name of Absalom. Absalom, the Bible says, would steal the hearts of the people of Israel away from David while David was king. He would rebel against his own father. David would be the one that would have to walk through that mess. And you can imagine how he must have felt probably a lot like this. And as Absalom would rebel against David, his own dad, and as he would set up his own little camp and his own little army and would come against David, David would have to walk through that valley of trouble. David would experience trouble in the form of his own sin, committed adultery, right, with Bathsheba, committed murder against her husband. David understood the circumstances of what trouble sometimes looks like. But one of the biggest forms of trouble that David faced was in regards to a friend turned enemy by the name of Saul. Saul had been the king before David would, talk, would take over. And for four years, David would be on the run from Saul. Saul would grow to hate David because of his success. Saul would, would have this intense hatred and jealousy of who David was, trying to kill him even on two separate occasions. And David would ultimately run from Saul all through the valleys and the caves and the mountains finding hiding places for four years. Throughout the region of Israel, David would run from him, and it would be through that time of trouble that many say he would write this psalm, Psalm chapter 16, in the context of trouble. And what we find here is that in Psalm 16, as David walks through this intense time of trouble in his own life, he sees it against the backdrop of who God is and of what God's plan would be. And so let's jump in here. Psalm chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. We're going to move through all 11 verses, make a couple of applications along the way. And if you're going through a time of trouble, man, I really hope this will be an encouragement for you. If not, take good notes because trouble has a way of finding us in this world in which we live. And it's good to know the truth of God's Word when we walk through that. Psalm chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. David says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good besides you. In this psalm, 11 verses, David 28 times uses the words, I, me, or my. It is an intensely personal psalm that David writes here. It's almost as though he is having a conversation with God, and that's exactly what it is. And in 11 verses, he uses those three words 11 time, or 28 times throughout the course of this psalm. And as he begins this psalm, what he does is, in the midst of his trouble, he identifies who God is. You can see it here. He uses three different words for, uh, for who God is. The first word is the word we translate God. In the Hebrew language, it would be the word El. And, and we find that word to mean God as creator. He is creator God. Sometimes through the Old Testament, you'll find that word partnered with other qualities of who God is. El Shaddai, right, as an example. But God, David refers to God as El, as creator God. The second word there, translated Lord at the beginning of verse 2, in your Bible, is probably written in all capital letters, all caps. And when you find it written in all caps, what it does is is, is it refers to a specific title, a specific name for God. It's that name Yahweh. That refers to the fact that God is a covenant God. He calls his people to covenant relationship with himself. The third word that David uses to refer to God in this psalm is the the word at the end of verse 2 of Lord, which translates Adonai. And it it simply means that God is sovereign, he is in control of every circumstance, and that he is also king. And so here's what David's doing. Don't miss this as you piece all this together. Here's David going through a time of trouble. He is pinning the words to this psalm. And at the very beginning, what he does is, is that he holds his trouble up against the backdrop of who God is. And he says, God, I want to establish and remind myself up front at the very beginning exactly who you are. You are creator God. You are a covenant-keeping God. And you are also, at the same time, Adonai. You are a god who is sovereign, you're in control, you are king. And so up against my trouble, I see beyond my trouble to the backdrop of who you are, that you're a God who loves me intensely. You're a God who's for me, not against me. You're a God who has breathed me into existence. You're a God who has ultimately uh, 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 made covenants with me that you're not going to break. You're a covenant keeping, promise making God, and you're going to be king and you're going to be in control forever and and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so David says at the very beginning, from the very outset, what I want to do, God, is in the midst of my time of trouble, I want to hold it up against who you are, because who you are far outweighs any trouble in which I could find myself. And so in these first two verses, David establishes truth that we need to be reminded of, because let's be honest, when we find ourselves in times of trouble, whether from a doctor, whether from from a phone call, whether from a meeting, whether from change that we didn't see coming, regardless of what it looks like, when we go through times of trouble, we often forget who God is in the context of that, don't we? So there's a simple truth here that I hope you'll jot down. The truth is this, that when we go through times of trouble or when we go through times of change, God can use that, and I believe he wants to use that to help us to identify, ultimately, where our trust is focused. Success does not always cause us to identify what we trust in. We're too busy celebrating. But when we go through time of trouble, whenever our world gets shaken by change... When we go through times of difficulty and we experience the chaos, the turmoil, and the emotions that are on edge, when we go through that and we feel that whole ball of tangled mess, right, what that often does is is it forces us to determine where our trust is focused. If our trust is in our career, what happens when our job is eliminated? Our trust ultimately fails. If our trust is in our finances, what happens whenever things change and the market crashes? or your pay goes down, ultimately that trust will fail. If our trust is in a relationship ultimately, and that relationship comes to an end or somehow changed, what happens is our trust ultimately fails. But when our trust is in God, it does not matter how good our times are, how bad our times are. doesn't matter what we have or what we don't have. When our trust is in God, regardless of what comes, we find that we will be okay and we will ultimately thrive because he is a God who is in charge in control has a plan for our lives and isn't going anywhere and he makes that very clear David starts off his his whole entire psalm by establishing that fact verse 3 and verse 4 he moves on he says as for the saints who are in the earth they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God. In other words, those who place their trust in something less than you, God, those who have, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. What David is establishing here is he's simply saying, God, you are the only one in whom I trust. And because you're not going anywhere, I'm not going anywhere either. And even though there'd be times of difficulty in David's life, and even though there'd be times of failure in his life, He was also known as a man after God's own heart And he took God at his word and he trusted him and he placed his trust in god specifically Alone, so let me ask you a question the last time you went through trouble Whenever you went through a time of difficulty Where it was all of that chaos and all of that turmoil and all of those feelings on edge When you went through that How did god use it to show you ultimately where your trust is found? And if you're going through trouble today how can he use that to help establish up front of where your trust is today and that it only be found in him? Verse 5 and verse 6, David begins to shift gears a little bit. He says, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me, you know, you read through these two verses, and, and you may, for you, you may think, oh, what in the world is going on with this? I don't understand half of this language here. What is the portion of my inheritance all about? What is this about the cup and about my lot and about the lines falling to me? What is all this? Well, we have to go back a little bit because David is actually giving us a little bit of a theology session here. And whenever we read this, this, these two verses, we have to go back before David to the time of Joshua. So I'll give you a little bit of that context. When David looks back to Joshua's time, what he sees is somewhat of the beginning of the tribes of Israel. And whenever they went in to conquer the promised land, the way it worked out, God's plan was, is that when they would conquer the promised land, they would apportion out the land there amongst the tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And so Joshua would lead the people to take this promised land, and as they would conquer the land, ultimately it would be apportioned out to the tribes of Israel. And if you were a family there in one of those tribes, then you would ultimately have boundary lines placed and you would get a plot of land that was apportioned out to you as well. So it was a pretty good deal. You know, you go in, you take over the promised land. If you're a family in a tribe, your tribe is going to get boundary lines. You're going to get boundary lines. You're going to get land out of the deal. It's going to be good. But there was one thing we have to be aware of, and that there was one tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel that did not get land inherited to them. They did not receive it as an inheritance, and it was the tribe of Levi, from whom we get the Levites in the Old Testament. Whenever we read this passage of Scripture, it is written in the context, David is speaking in the context of the tribes of Israel and their inheritance that they received in the promised land. But if you look back in Deuteronomy, look at this real quickly. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 9, we, we, we see here in the Old Testament how the Levites did not get a portion. It says, therefore, Levi, the tribe, does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. And so in Joshua's day, follow me, he had 12 tribes of Israel. They go into the promised land all 11 of those tribes get land as an inheritance except for Levi. The Levites would not get land. God would say, you know what? I'm enough for you. And so against that context, against that backdrop, let's go back again to verse five and look at what David says. He says, so the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. It doesn't depend on how good things are going for me. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm going through a time of trouble. It doesn't matter what I have or what I don't have. Who's with me? Who's against me? None of those things matter. What David says here, he says, the Lord is my portion. He is my inheritance. He is my cup. He supports my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. In other words, when I look back over the scope of my life, David says, yes, I have faced trouble. Yes, I've been through turmoil. Yes, I have gone through the valley, but God has somehow as my inheritance worked it all out for good and I've been better off with the trouble than I would have been without it all because of him and David looks back and he sees an intense testimony of God's faithfulness to him through those times of change through those times of trouble through the times of difficulty in his life look at verse 7 he says so I will bless the Lord who's counseled me Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. And because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I had a question from someone a few weeks ago. We were studying a passage of Scripture. It was actually one of our uh, Cuba mission team meetings. And somebody said, well, you know, something about a passage we were reading that talked about being Jesus seated at the right hand of God. And they said, you know, what is the significance of the right hand? You know, what is the significance of that? You know, as I studied this passage, I understood a little better exactly what that significance is. To be at the right hand means to be in a place of defender, protector, provider. And in a sense, we understand that, right? Because we'll talk about people today and we'll say, hey, this is my right-hand man. You know, This, this, is, this guy's here with me through thick and thin. He, you know, he helps me to do the things I need to do. This is my right-hand man. So we understand that context a little bit. Well, all through Scripture, we find that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And no, it doesn't mean that God the Father is somehow weak and frail and needs to protect. It doesn't mean that. But it's a position of authority. It's a position of defender and provider. Here's the cool thing about this particular passage. David says, as he looks at the trouble of his life, verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is what? He is at my right hand. You know, it, it seems... That David is understanding in the face of his trouble that he has a guard and he has a guide and he has a defender and he has a provider. And no matter how deep the valley or how hard the struggle may be, no matter how dark it may become, no matter what kind of trouble he may face, David understands that I have a shelter and I have a guard and I have a guide and I have a provider and I have one who's gonna fight for me because he's for me and he's not against me and his name is Jesus Christ. He is my ultimate savior. David understood that in the times of trouble and it was the time of trouble listen that helped him to understand that better than any time of success could have he would go on to verse 9 look at what he says he says for he stands or or Psalm 109 I'm sorry he says elsewhere for he stands at the right hand of the needy another illustration of Christ uh, our Savior standing at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul Psalm 121 look at what it says in verse 5 through 8 the Lord is your keeper the Lord is your shade on your right hand The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out, and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And listen, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and you are going through a time of change or struggle or turmoil or difficulty, some kind of trouble, and you're tempted to feel like that picture of just that convoluted mess of raw emotion and fear and frustration and anger, all those things that you face, understand that behind all of that, when you pull out just a little bit in the picture against the backdrop of God's grace and God's love and God's faithfulness and God's plan and God's power, that he is creator, he is Lord, he is sovereign, he is committed, he is not gonna break a promise, he is not gonna fall short on a covenant, he is going to be with you through thick and thin, man, that changes everything about the way we see our trouble in it and the way we we respond to it. David understood that. Verse 9 and verse 10. So he says, Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices, and my flesh also will dwell securely. This is an odd statement to make, isn't it, for a man who's in the midst of the valley. (laughs) My heart is glad. My glory rejoices. I'm secure. Verse 10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. This is an Old Testament Hebrew term meaning the grave. You will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Portions of that passage right there would be quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2, referring to the Messiah. Portions of that passage will be quoted by Paul in Acts chapter 13, referring to the Messiah. The reference of both of those quotes in the New Testament would be in the context of the Messiah's resurrection. When we go through times of trouble and we keep in mind that we have a relationship with a God who has risen from the dead, (laughs) hey, there is nothing, there is nothing that can put us down for the long haul when we keep in mind exactly who God is that we serve when we have a relationship with Christ. David would be so changed by this, verse 11. At the beginning of the psalm, he would be praising God for who he was, walking through the valley of trouble, and at the end, Look at what he says. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. David would be changed. Not by his circumstances. Listen. David would be changed by a faithful, all-powerful, sovereign, covenant-keeping God in the midst of his circumstances. Which for those who go through times of trouble can change everything when we realize that i remember years ago those uh 3d posters do you remember those 3d posters that had the the hidden image in there? You had to stare at the spot for like i don't know 30 minutes or something it depends on how quick you were i guess i don't know it's like a couple hours for me and uh Remember those posters? I hope you don't decorate your bedroom with those posters today. But, you know, a lot of us, you know, if you were teenagers or whatever, you know, had some of those. And uh, those posters, they were just basically 3D with a graphic design there that made no sense at all. And you'd spare, stare at one specific spot. And as you stare at that spot, over a period of time, finally an image would come out. It would sort of like pop out of, the, pop out of all the, the visual noise that was there. And, and it was it's kind of funny at times because you'd stare at it and finally, you know, you'd get in a headache and it's like, oh, I see a unicorn. <laughs> and it's like, this wasn't worth it at all. You know, my head's pounding now and all I see is a credit unicorn. I mean, what was this all about? But it's interesting because when you think about those things, the, 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 what, was, what, was, what was cool was that hidden against the backdrop of all that visual noise was an image that you couldn't see. But if you looked at the right place for long enough, And if you waited for long enough, there would be something that would come out of that visual noise that had been there all along that you would have missed had you given up sooner, had you given up too quickly. When we go through times of trouble, that trouble is in many ways visual noise, right? Whenever we go through times of trouble, it's, it's the heartache, it's the pain, it's the, uh, the confusion, it's the anguish, it's the turmoil. When we go through trouble, it's like noise in our lives. But if we keep our eyes focused long enough without losing heart, and we persevere, and we keep our eyes on Christ, the author and defender of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, and when we see God for who He is, one who keeps His promise one who doesn't bail out, one who stays close, who gives wisdom and direction. And when we look and we begin to see him in the context of our, of our trouble, what we find is that we learn things about God we would have never learned before and we learn things about ourselves we never would have learned before and we come out better in the end because his plan is always, always best. I think it can be said that trouble and change are often the very colors that God uses in our lives. To paint himself as mighty. As mighty in our lives. God uses blessing. God uses good. But God also uses the hard times, the valleys, the struggles, the changes, and the trouble. To paint himself in our lives as mighty. If we're only willing to trust him and to follow his lead how many of you would say in your life today that you remember a day back in the past whenever you went through your own little set of trouble and back then when you walked through that trouble you fixed your eyes on christ and you trusted him and yes it was bumpy and yes it got dark and yes it hurt and yes it was scary but you fixed your eyes on him and you trusted him. And today you've come through the other side and you look back and you see God differently than you did back then. How many of you would say that? You've been through a time like that. So the next time we find ourselves in a place like this, a picture of trouble, just remember that if if you know Jesus Christ and you've turned from your sin and you've given your life to him, that he has a way of using that trouble for good Romans 8:28 he is a god who never changes Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 and as you trust him and as you seek him and as you follow him he will prove himself as mighty as creator as defender as guardian as provider as protector as covenant keeper as sovereign and as king and it'll be the trouble that he used to paint himself that way so what are you going to do the next time you face trouble? Are you going to go it alone? Are <laughs> you going to cut and run, bail out, and blame God? Or are you going to do like David did? See him for who he is and see that trouble pale in comparison to the backdrop of his might and his power and his grace. Let's pray. Lord, scattered all through this room this morning are people in various stages of trouble in their lives. Lord, it may be trouble that's financial. It may be trouble that is marital. It may be trouble that is family-related. It may be trouble in a career. It may be trouble because they, they fell short of what you wanted. They sinned. They made a poor choice. Lord, there is trouble woven all through this room this morning of every shade and of every style because we live in a fallen world. But God, there is also woven throughout this building a very real capacity for those same people who are in the midst of trouble today to one day look back and say those were the colors that God used to paint on the tapestry of my life an absolute masterpiece to where they'll look back and in a strange way this world will understand, they'll thank you for the trouble because you used it to change them. The change didn't come because they got better. The change came because they ran to you. And they found that you are a very good God. And so, Lord, for those in trouble today, I pray as we sing in just a moment that they'll sing from a heart of trust, even through tears perhaps. And Lord, I pray that for those who can't sing, all they can do is pray, that they'll pray a prayer of trust, trusting in you to bail them out, to make it all work, to fix the situation, to do whatever you want to do, but they'll trust you that regardless of what happens, that they'll be okay in Christ. And God, for those who don't know you this morning, maybe it's the trouble they face that has brought them to a place to decide who's going to be lord of their life and lord may they be very quick today to confess their sin to jesus your son who came and who died for us and who rose again and may they choose to not only confess their sin but to ask him to forgive them and to wipe their sin away and to make their heart clean and pure again to give them a brand new start what a deal (laughs) and may they invite jesus as well to come and just take over as master, as savior, as Lord. And so God, whatever we need to do in these next few moments, God, help us to do it. And God, we praise you for being the God you are in a fallen world, to fallen people, a God of grace and of love and of hope and of help and of life. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen.